Thank you, Lisa. Praise God. Um, Pastor Nick has got uh, on vacation, and so he'll be back next Sunday. I know he'll be raring to go um, to preach, and, um, and, and I'm looking forward, looking forward to getting him back. Um, why don't you bow with me and pray? Dear Lord, uh, while Nick and Lexi are away um, rejuvenating, uh, I just pray your blessing on them and their family. Uh, continue to strengthen them as a couple, as parents, and uh, encourage them in the ministry that they have uh, for you to us. Now, Lord, this morning as we uh, turn our hearts uh, to look at 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel and explore uh, three uh, very important kings, I just ask that you open our ears and hearts uh, to hear a word from you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I'm continuing in a series that Pastor Nick started uh, called The Gospel Through the Bible. In it, uh, we are showing the link, um, be, which is Jesus, to every part of the Bible, uh, even in the Old Testament. Today we're going to explore the very important subject of grace, and we are going to do that by looking at three very different kings. But before I jump headlong into a, a discussion of these three kings, I want to tell you a personal story about how I learned about grace. Um, I don't know about you, but uh, I started sinning when I was very young. And um, my mom could tell you stories, but one of the stories that I remember, I must have been about eight or nine, and uh, my parents were working on Sunday, and they weren't able to go to Mass with us at a Resurrection Catholic School, which was also our church. And but they, so they sent us, they sent me and my older brother. My brother was about five years older than us. And we could walk to, to, to church. It was about a four block walk. So we, we just walked as usual, it was a sunny day. And my brother had some cash and he had this idea. He said, you know, after service, we should go to McDonald's. And I said, McDonald's, are you kidding me? Eight, nine years old? That's like, you know, that's like going to Disneyland. You know, I was like, McDonald's, yeah, you know. And I said, great, let's go. And then I thought about it. You know, I didn't have any money. Now, when we left the house, as my mom's custom, she took an envelope out and put a $1.50 in the envelope. And she wrote the exact amount and she wrote my name on it. She sealed it and she said to me, Lloyd, you take that money and put it in the collection plate. So I, I'm on my way, my brother talks about McDonald's, I'm all excited about Ronald, and I say, you know what, you know, it's 1974, $4, I could buy a hamburger, fries, and a Coke, and I could get change back. <laughs> you, know, I, you know, I'll just take the dollar, nobody will think anything of it. We go to church, have mass, I, t I took the money out, I wasn't a smart sinner, I didn't mark the, the envelope down from a dollar fifty to, to 50 cents, you know, the envelope was very similar to this, it was very easy to open and very easy to reseal, it's amazing, technology hasn't changed much in envelopes. And so, I didn't think anything of it. A couple days later, my mom gets a call from the church, they tell her what's happened. If the envelope said $1.50, we only saw 50 cents in there. Might want to check with your son. Mom calls me in. I know I'm busted. And so I don't even come up with any excuses. I say, Mom, Lawrence wanted to go to McDonald's. It wasn't me. I didn't want to go. 
He didn't have no extra money. Mom, I took took the dollar. I know I was wrong. Um, And so she looked at me with that disappointed look and she said, you know what? Said tomorrow morning, first thing, Father Phelan wants to see you at at the school, at the church. So I was like, man, mom, why didn't you just, you could have got a belt out and spanked me. I mean, you could have done it yourself. Why are you going to send me to the priest? You know, back in these days now, there wasn't so much of a taboo in relation to, to spanking kids. And so if a nun thought she had cause, if you were misbehaving, no problem with taking a ruler out, a little spank here, a little spank there. That was, that was normal practice back in 1974. So I, so I was like, oh, man, I'm going to really get it. So I get there. I go to the rectory. I, I go to see Father Phelan. Father Phelan's probably 60 years old. Nice, godly man. We had five kids that went through resurrection. He knew the family well. I always respected Father Phelan. He takes me into his office and sits me down. I think he could see the, the fear in me. I was trembling in my penny loafers. I sat down and Father said, Lloyd, tell me, what, what were you thinking? I said, Father, I ain't got no excuses. I took the money because I wanted to go to McDonald's. I know I was wrong. And he looked at me. There was a sadness in his eyes, you know. But it wasn't a condescension. He wasn't looking down with the kind of thing where he thought he was better than me. He was looking down with a sadness. And he said, Lloyd, listen, you know that you shouldn't have done this. I don't expect that you'll ever do this again. You hear me? I said, You're right, Father. I won't do it again. He got up from his chair, walked around, put his arm around me, walked me to the door, and sent me on my way. Now, I always liked Father Phelan, but after he forgave me for my sin, I loved Father Phelan. Today, I want to talk to you about the grace, the abundant grace that God has bestowed upon all of us. For definition purposes this morning, when I talk about grace, here's what I simply mean. I mean God's unmerited favor that he gives to all of his children. You and I don't deserve it, but because of God's sterling character, his goodness, his mercy, and his generosity are all a part of his holy character. That's the grace that we're going to talk about. And to do that, I'm going to recount the story of three different kings. The first king is the author of grace. He is the Lord our God. The second king is the rejecter of grace. This is King Saul. And the third king is the recipient of grace. This is King David. Now, I want you to open up in your pew Bibles around page 442. This is first, or you can do one of two things. You can open up in your pew Bibles, or you can turn to 1 Samuel chapter, or, uh, uh, 1 Samuel 8, 1, 9, or look on, on the screen. I'm going to read it from my book because it's just easier for me. So I'm going to read it in the book. All right? I'm going to read just nine verses. And as I read, I want you to think of this. This thing is super sensitive, but that's all right. I'm going to swing it. I want you to think at this point. The grace of God is most clearly demonstrated 
by how God completely forgives us from our sins. I want you to look for that in this story of how he forgives King Saul and the nation of Israel. All right? So here's the text. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as judges for Israel. The name of his first son was Joel, Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah, and they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. Um, Yogi Berra, there's the Yogi Berraisms. One of the Yogi Berraisms is deja vu all over again. You remember the last time I preached, we talked about Eli and his wicked sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Here it is, Samuel and his sons are also misbehaving. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But when they said, give me a king to lead us, This displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord told him, Listen, to all that the people are saying to you, it is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king, as they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt until this very day, forsaking me, serving other gods, so they're doing to you. Now, listen to them, but warn them solemnly, and let them know what the king who will reign over them will do. You see, the people have forgotten that they already had an almighty king. God had taken them out of Egypt, destroyed the Egyptians with ten plagues, destroyed the Egyptian army in the Red Sea, fed them day to day with manna, took them into the promised land, appointed them faithful leaders like Moses and then Joshua. One amazing scene of grace can be found in Joshua chapter 10. The Amorites, five kings, have come and attacked the people, have come to attack Joshua. And Joshua prays to the Lord and the Lord tells him he's going to give him the battle and he goes out to fight. In the midst of of Joshua fighting, he prays, Lord, stop the sun and stop the moon so that we can take care of these people uh, in daylight. And the Lord answers their gracious request and they wipe out the Amorites. But here's the amazing story. The text says in chapter 10 that God, who was in heaven, from heaven, threw down hailstones while Joshua was engaging the Amorites, and that he killed more people with hailstones than Joshua and the army killed with the sword. That's because the Lord always fought the battles for Israel. Whenever they won, whether it was clear that there was an earthquake and a a, a miracle or not, The Spirit of God interceded on behalf of his people to win the battle. So God is displeased. Where are you going to find a king that can work miracles like that? But we have a humble God. And he said to Samuel, okay, let's answer their request. Let's give them what they wanted. So here's what he does next. He sets up a situation where Samuel and Saul 
are in the same town at the same time. He tells Samuel, you're going to appoint this, this person from the tribe of Benjamin. I know he's a nobody, but this is the guy. And you're going to meet him in this town called Zuff. Samuel is on the way to Zuff by, by coincidence, by real providence. He's looking for his father's lost donkeys. They meet in this town. There's a feast that goes on. Samuel invites Saul to the feast. The next day he says to him a few important things. He says, listen. On whom has the Lord blessed to rule his people? He pulls out a flask and pours it over him, anoints him as king, and gives him some very clear instructions. He says, listen, very soon you're going to be walking when we leave, and you're going to run into two men, and out of nowhere they're going to give you bread. Then you're going to run into three men, and these men are going to, actually the first two are going to tell you that your donkeys have been found. The next three are going to give you two loaves of bread, and the third group of men are going to be prophets. And when you run into them, the Spirit is going to come upon you, and you're going to become a new man. And after that happens, I want you to do as the occasion demands. Then, I am going to go to Gilgal. I want you to go to Gilgal, wait seven days, and I'm going to tell you what to do next. When it comes to God, sometimes it's helpful to track all the blessings that he's given you. I'm a journaler. I like to keep journals. I got all kinds of stuff in there. Here's what's going on. First, the people demanded a king, and the Lord graciously answered. Second, he gave them a king from their own people, and he gave him spiritual power to succeed. Third, all of those signs, all they were intended was, was to give Saul confidence. All these coincidences, things that help us stay on the path following God, sometimes God put those in our way so that we can have more faith. And that's what he's doing here with Saul, with the two and the three and the signs. It's just to confirm, listen, you're not, you're not an accident. No, God has appointed you king. And the last is he gave Saul instructions. You follow these and you're going to be a big success. So Saul, the very first day he leaves, all these things come upon him on one day. The spirit comes upon him. Saul takes, uh, Samuel takes Saul, presents him to the people. He's big, he's handsome, he's imposing. The people say, are pleased. They say, long live the king. Now they get a little test. The men of Jabez-Gilead, this town is about 50 miles away from Jerusalem, north. Saul lives in Gibeah, about three miles away from Jerusalem. They, they attack. They have a king called Nahash, the, Am the Ammonites. Their king says, listen, we're going to attack your city. They're setting up siege mounds. And the people go out to King Nahash and they say, listen, listen, you know, we'll, we'll surrender. Let's make a treaty. And Nahash says to them, okay, I'll make a treaty with you on one condition. I want to put out the right eye of everybody that's here. And they're like, oh my God, this is pretty onerous. Wait a minute, why don't you give, give, give us a few days? And they send message back to Samuel and Gibeah. And Samuel, immediately when he gets their message, 
It says the spirit of God comes upon him. He's aroused by anger. He does something that seems a little harsh, but it's effective. He takes two oxen, slices them up, sends them towards all of the nations. And the spirit comes upon all the people, all the tribes of Israel. And the spirit comes among the people. And they come together united with Saul and Gibeah. They march 45 miles into Jabesh Gilead. They wipe out the Ammonites. No two of them are left. They scatter them. And the people are super delighted. Samuel looks upon the scene and he takes Saul and he takes the the people and he says, listen, we need to go and renew the covenant. We need to, to, to make sure that for us to succeed as a nation, two things are clear. One, that you will obey this king that you have demanded. And two, that we as a nation will continue to obey the Lord. So I want to pick up in 1 Samuel chapter 12. This area is very important to understanding the grace of God. Meanwhile, I want to add a one item to the checklist. God uses the king they demanded, that's the last one, to defeat the Ammonites. He gives him power. Through the power that God gives Saul, they defeat the Ammonites. 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 6. Saul, Samuel, confirms to the people that all that he has done has been in his integrity. He confirms that in the first five verses. Everybody agrees that he's always been honest because he's about to give testimony and he wants them to understand the testimony. Then Samuel said to the people, it is the Lord who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your forefathers out of Egypt. Now then stand here because I'm going to confront you with evidence before the Lord as to all the righteous acts performed by the Lord for you and your fathers. After Jacob entered Egypt, they cried to the Lord for help, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your forefathers out of Egypt and settled them in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God, so he sold them into the hand of Sisera, the commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hands of the Philistines and the king of Moab, who fought against them. They cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned, we have forsaken the Lord, and served the Baals and the Ashtoreths served idols, but now deliver us from the hands of our enemies and we will serve you. So this was a sin cycle that happened with Jerubel, the prophet, Barak, Jephthah, Samuel, every judge that was given the people for a time, the people would obey God and there'd be peace. And then afterwards they go back to their idolatry. But when you saw that Nahash, verse 12, king of the Ammonites was moving against you, you said to me, no, we want a king to rule over us. Even though the Lord had been leading them faithfully all the time. So here's what God says. Here is your king, the one you've chosen, the one you asked for. See, the Lord has set a king over you. If you fear the Lord, and serve and obey him. The covenant didn't change. God was still king and God was going to rule the people, whether it be an earthly king as representative or a judge. 
The, the, the commandment is still the same. Obey and follow God. If you fear the Lord and serve and obey him and do not rebel against his commands, and if you, both you and the king who reigns over you, follow the Lord your God, good. But if you do not obey the Lord, and if you rebel against his commands, his hand will be against you. Grace checklist. All the things I mentioned before. He delivers the people through the new king. Sometimes the best thing a friend can do for you is to tell you that you're wrong. To show you your sin with the hope that you would repent and turn and, and go in the right direction. So the grace is when things are going wrong and we can't understand why things are going wrong. The grace was that God clearly explained to the people the, why, the reason you're afraid of all the surrounding kingdoms is because you have not been obedient to me. Now, be obedient and you will live in prosperity and you will be safe. And that was God's grace. And the last point is this, and don't forget this. He totally forgave their sins. It was done. He restored them, gave them a king, set them in place, empowered him for victory, and said, now, you're fully restored. Go and serve me. That's amazing grace. Now, God knows that even us who now have the Holy Spirit in us, through faith in Christ Jesus, that sometimes we will make mistakes. We yet still have sin nature in us, and so we have the power to do right, but sometimes we do wrong. God understands this. And so he provides grace for us in terms of forgiveness. And I have found over the years, uh, as a married man when I was single, that I have needed the grace of God and other people to sustain me, to give me the strength to move forward. Uh, Jason, this is one of my favorite basketball players, uh, former basketball players. This is uh, Magic Johnson. He's about 53 years old now. Um, Five-time NBA champion, three or four-time finals MVP, three-time MVP, phenomenal athlete, tremendously uh, famous. But one of the things that he became more famous for uh, even more famous than the fact that he owns the Los Angeles Dodgers, that he's the head of the, of the ownership group. More famous than that was for becoming HIV positive. In 1991, after about 12 years in the NBA, and two days after his wife, Cookie, told him that she was pregnant with their first child, Magic was doing some tests because of an insurance situation. He probably was applying for life insurance. Uh, that's a good thing. I used to be in there. So he was probably doing some life insurance stuff. And the test came back and they found out, he found out he had the HIV virus. So he had to go home, devastated, and tell his wife. Whew, could you imagine? So he goes in and he just lays it out. And Cookie, as you would imagine, was terrified, was afraid. And in those days, to take the test was a 10-day wait. So you take the HIV virus test, you have to wait 10 days before for the answer. 
So she's concerned, she's nervous, and she's waiting. Praise God, comes, the test comes back that she doesn't have HIV, nor does her unborn child. Um, so here's the situation. Magic knows that he has messed up in a major way. He tells his wife, listen, I'll understand it if you divorce me, if you want to divorce me. I'm not going to fight you. I know I put you in a situation you never bargained for this. You can, you can go. His wife thinks about it, but not too long. And I want to give you uh, the quote that she gave the newspapers back in 1996, because I think it's very um, important for you to have it. Here's what she says. I was just scared for both of us. And I dealt with it, and I still deal with it spiritually. I've gone deeper into my faith. I just turned the situation over to the Lord and put it in his hands, and that's how I manage it. I'm going to let God take care of it. And we pray for Irvin's healing, and we go on and live our days one by one. Recently, I was watching ESPN talk about this aspect of Magic's life. And he says this, reflecting on the grace his wife gave him and forgiving him for the actions that led to him getting a, uh, HIV. He said that if it had not been for his wife's forgiveness, he thinks he would have died. Um, he was on 15 pills a day regimen. His immune system was beginning to weaken. The media was all over him. And he doesn't think that he would have been able to deal with that pressure if at the same time as he was dealing with a lost career and lost health, he was going to lose his family. So he says his wife saved his life. Now I've got a question for you. What do you think your life would look like if it was not for the grace of God? So we've talked about God, who's the author of grace. I want to talk about to you very briefly about the rejecter of grace. This is King Saul. Now, the occasion, as the occasion commanded, that was one of the signs, that was one of the instructions that Samuel gave to Saul. He said, uh, after the Spirit comes upon you, something's going to happen and you're to do it. And he did it. But then after that, he says, now, go to Gilgal, wait for me seven days. And then after that, I'm going to come make an offering to God and I'm going to tell you what to do next. So he goes to Gilgal. The Philistines are about to attack him and his people in, in, at Gilgal. One, two, three, four days passes. His soldiers start to desert him. Seventh day comes. He's still not there. What does he do? He makes the sacrifice himself. Now, he was appointed king, but he was not a prophet. He was not a priest. He was not a mediator in that way. That was Samuel's responsibility. As soon as he sets the, starts offering, Samuel shows up. What are you doing? He says, you know, I, I, they were there. They were about to attack. He says, you have done a foolish thing. Why didn't you simply just obey what God had told you? Now, here's the result. You are no longer 
if you had obeyed, you'd have a king on the throne forever. But because of your disobedience, your kingdom is going to be terminated. God has sought for him a man after his own heart. The scripture doesn't say what that means, but here's what I think it means. Somebody that is going to have a zeal to obey God. Somebody who's going to seek God's heart. Somebody that's going to love. God is going to appoint a man after his own heart. And Saul, you are not, your kingdom is not going to be everlasting. But God has mercy. He gave him another chance. He said, listen, he came back to him later, chapter 15 of 1 Samuel. He says, listen, the Amalekites, I want you to wipe them out. They're wicked, evil people. They attacked my people when they were traveling from Egypt into Canaan. Deal with the Amalekites. Wipe them out and their king. And here's what Saul does this time. His army goes out. They kill everything that's worthless. They take the best animals. They save, they spare Agag. And then he goes into a town and sets up a monument of victory to himself. God appears to Samuel overnight and says, listen, I grieve over appointing this guy. He has turned aside from following after me. He is no longer, he is not my servant. Listen, it's very important for us to understand the king, the the responsibility of the king, the first responsibility was to lead the people in righteousness by following the Lord's commands. That was the number one priority. And Saul had proven himself to be uh, uh, unreliable at the very first point. So here's what happens. God goes to him and tells him, essentially, you are guilty of a couple of major sins. You are guilty of rebellion, which is just like going to see uh, a phony, a, 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 a diviner, a card reader. You're guilty of rebellion, and then you're guilty of arrogance which is just like idolatry in terms of not obeying the commandment that I had given to you. I want to tell you, I want to leave you with three important uh, issues that we have to watch for. When I read Saul, I'm usually guilty of two extremes. In the one case, I'll look at his life and I'll say, God, those sins weren't that bad. Couldn't you have given him one more opportunity? And usually that's when things are not going so well in my own personal life and I'm, I may be doing some stuff I shouldn't be doing. I look at it, I'll read these, this text in First and Second Samuel and I'll say, give him, couldn't you have given him a little mercy? And then other times I'll think that things are going good and you know, my devotional life is going right and, and whatever and I'll, I'll, I'll come with self-righteousness and I'll say, I, you know, why, why did you even give him a second opportunity? Why didn't you just take care of him? But there's a third way to look at Saul, and it's simply to recognize that all of us who follow God are called to walk by faith. We accepted God, we accepted Christ, the Spirit is in us, and now we are just to obey obey Him. We don't see Him, but we love Him and we follow Him. That was what was expected of Saul, and that was where he failed. And when we see these three sins in ourselves, we know that we're behaving like Saul. When we don't obey the things that we know are clearly true, like when I took the money out of that collection plate. When we behave 
when we attempt to glorify ourselves while we're doing God's work, we always have to check our motives. Who's getting the glory? Do I serve God for attention or because I'm trying to build his kingdom? And the third, we behave like Saul when we seek the praise of men more than the praise of God. A quick illustration. 1958, a book was written called The Ugly American. It was a story about, that was really about American diplomats in Vietnam. But they came up with, to, to protect people's names, they created another southeastern country. The premise was that the American diplomats treated the folks with innate um, pride, arrogance, just dismissed them totally and had no respect for their customs. That was written in 58, a movie came out in 63, and the thing kind of turned into a stereotype. And Americans began to be known as kind of very disrespectful, very prideful, think that we have it all, think that we know it all. In, 19, in 2003, I was preparing to go on a missions trip to Haiti for the first time, and the missions agency that was training us, it was a group of us from various churches that had come together, they warned us, they said, listen, we just had a group of Americans go to Haiti, and they behaved very badly. They were arrogant, they looked down upon people. These were Christians. So what we want you to, do, to recognize is to check your attitudes. Remember that you are God's servant, humbly serving others who may be Christians or not. And that was the admonition they had to give us before we went into Haiti. I say this to say that Saul had sins was rebellion, and pride. And these are common sins. Not just kings and presidents can be caught up into pride, but preachers, executive pastors, ushers, moms and dads, people like you and me. So we just need to remember that it's God's grace that sustains us. What do we have that God didn't give us? The third king this morning is the recipient of grace. What's important to recognize about David is that he's not that impressive. He's simply an ordinary guy. Let me briefly recount four reasons why I believe that's true. Number one. When Samuel shows up, sent by God to Bethlehem to appoint one of Jesse's sons as king, uh, David is out in the field with sheep. The six sons are invited to receive Samuel. Jesse doesn't think enough of his son to even bring him into the fields. Samuel looks over all of them, the big, strong Eliab, he was about to pull out his flask and anoint him. He had to be king. Look how impressive he was. And God said, I rejected that one. All the other six come, five more sons come, he rejects them all. Six more sons come, because there were seven and then David was the eighth. He rejects them all. He said, is there not another? Yeah, but he, he's the youngest and he's out with the sheep. Bring him in. We can't get going until we see him. He comes in. Scripture says he was bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. He looked, him out, he looked over him over and said, yeah, that's the one. So they anoint him. Immediately he becomes another man. 
first underestimation. His own father thought nothing special. A little later on in the story, David goes to the battlefront. Goliath and the Philistines are threatening the nation of Israel. Jesse's three oldest sons are at the battlefront. Jesse sends David to go check on him. David goes out and he watches how Goliath just threatens and he is, um, he intimidates the whole Israeli army. Whenever he comes out into the valley, the scripture says 40 days he presented himself saying, give me a man. If, If you present this man and if he can beat me, then we Philistines will serve you. But if I can beat him, then you guys will serve us. Give me a man. 40 days he comes out and the Israelites flee before him. David gets out to the scene and he sees this stuff and it just, he's just amazed. Here's what he sees when David gets out there. And then you recognize he's full of the spirit. You also have to need to keep in mind that now God has used David. And as being a shepherd, God has empowered him to kill both the lion and the bear to protect himself and um, the sheep. So he has experience walking by faith with God. But people don't really know that. They just see him as a puny, kind of young man, nice looking, but nothing special. He goes out and says to the people, is there not a cause? Here is the king of Israel, the king of the almighty God, the anointed one. Here we are in Canaan, the land that God has promised us. Here we are with the people who have been given the covenants. We are the chosen people, a holy nation. And here is this uncircumcised Philistine, scum, you know, garbage, trash talking Philistine, threatening God's people. This ain't nothing. So Eliab sees this. And he says, David, you just prideful. You just want to see the battle. Why don't you go back home to where those sheep are? Second time a man has underestimated him. David was unfazed because he was there to protect God's honor. It wasn't about him. It wasn't about his position. It was about the people. It was about the king. It was about Israel. So he was undaunted. Saul hears about this story. Saul says, bring the man here. I'm offering my daughter in marriage. I'm offering tax exemption for for households in England. I'm offering money. Listen, I'm trying to get any brave person. Hey, Eliab, oldest son, why don't you come? I'm offering any person. Come. And stand up for Goliath. Now, the Spirit of God has left Saul. So all of that power he had before, when he stood up to the Ammonites, is gone. And now he's just as fearful as every, any other unbeliever. And there he is. He sees this man. And he says to David, he looks him over, he says, man, you are young and you are inexperienced. There's no way you're going to be able to fight against this man, Goliath. He is a warrior since his youth. He's over nine feet tall. He wears armor, 125 pounds. He's been whomping on people since his youth. Ain't no way you got any chance. Third time he's been underestimated. And all David does is tell him, listen, there's a cause. God is not pleased with this stuff. And I know what God can do because he's done it in me. Send me at him. All right, Saul says, okay, I don't got no other options. Here, take my armor. You know, I'll pray for you. He didn't say that. Should have. But he, I, he said, take my armor and go. So he tries to put on his armor. It's too clunky. doesn't fit. So he grabs things that a shepherd would use. Five smooth stones. 
a slingshot, a staff. He says, let me at him. And then he gets disrespected for the fourth time. Turn with me to 1 Samuel 17. He gets disrespected for the fourth time. 1 Samuel 17, 41. The Philistine, with his shield bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was only a boy, ruddy and handsome, and he despised him. He looked him over and he said, Jason, it's kind of like when you playing ball and you get, you know, a fourth grader talking to him, he's going to beat you on the basketball court, and you are starting on the varsity, you'd be like, come on, man, you got to be kidding me, man. I'm going to take you down in a few seconds. This this doesn't mean no big deal. So this is what the Philistine says. He looks at this guy, and he says, listen, you are puny. There's no way you're going to be able to handle this. He said to David, am I a dog that you have come out to me with sticks? And the Philistine, it is funny. It's super funny. And, and the Philistine cursed David by his gods. He's cursing him. He's like, come on, Dagon, Baal, we're going to wipe you out. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. But you've got to understand now, he was not a very impressive man in terms of stature. But what was impressive about him <laughs> was his faith. I am sure to Goliath. He looked like Opie Taylor with a slingshot in his hand. Young, cute, cuddly, I'll take him down in a minute. This is kind of the situation. Very good. All right. David wasn't big in stature. But he was big in faith. That's the second point about the recipient of of God's grace. He believed God. If God told him something once, he would run with it. So here's how he responds to the trash-talking Philistine. Finally, the man of God steps forward. Verse 45. Now David said to the Philistine, You come against me with a sword and a spear and a javelin. But I come with you in the name of the Lord Almighty. He came wrapped in his faith in God, filled with the Holy Spirit. The God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied, this day the Lord will hand you over to me, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. Today, I will give the carcasses of the whole Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. David was about magnifying the glory of God and building God's kingdom. He had been anointed king at this point, but he was not acting here to establish himself as king. He already recognized that God would take care of that for him. He was here on God's business. All those gathered here will know that it is not by the sword, it's not by the spear that the Lord saves, 
It was not by the skills that David had developed by taking care of the sheep in the fields of Bethlehem. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. And so David goes forward with one shot from the sling. He drops him, grabs Goliath's sword, cuts off of his head. Because the battle was the Lord, because the Spirit of God did battle for him that day. Now, what I want to say to you is this, that that's how it is with us here in the family of God. Because of the Spirit of God that dwells in us, and because we fight in God's kingdom, there's a reason why we sent people year after year to the DR. Spirit-filled Christ believers, 12 years straight, and some want to sign up for another tour of duty. There's a reason why today we have people, this very day from our church in the Ukraine, sharing their faith with unbelievers in the hopes that maybe one would come to know Jesus Christ. There's a reason why we have VBS, 160 kids, about 20 that didn't know the Lord, no, no church affiliation, trying to share the grace of God with those who don't know him. There's a reason why we have ushers at the door. And here is the reason, the one and only reason. Through the spirit of God working in us, we seek to build the kingdom of God. And that is why I love Wheaton College's motto, for Christ and his kingdom. That's our motivation. That's our battle cry. That's how we serve the Lord Jesus Christ. And in that kind of power, the same power that we have, God is building his kingdom on earth until he returns. Now, I've got one more point that I want to make about David. What's impressive about David it's how he responds to the grace of God. Flash forward in our story. David is now the king. Unfortunately, Saul and three sons died in the battle against the Philistines on Mount Gilboa. The kingdom has been consolidated in David's hands. God is giving him success as he destroys the foreign nations that are around him. And, um, there, but not without mishap. They try to bring in the, the, the uh, Ark of the Covenant because it wasn't in Jerusalem where David's palace was. And he wanted to bring it in, and that was right and righteous for him to do that. But he doesn't do what the scriptures say. He doesn't employ the Levites to carry it in properly. Um, they have other folks, they put it on a cart. A man well-intentioned, but not equipped for the task, is struck dead when he puts his hand on the holy ark. But then David reads the law of Moses, finds out what happened, and gets the Levites. And as they're bringing it into Jerusalem, and as he considers all that God has done from him, taking him from being a shepherd 
to being a king, creating peace for the whole nation, which was the reason why God wanted a righteous king in the first place. It was for the people that God provides godly leadership, not for themselves. He looks upon this grace and it causes him to dance before the Lord with all of his might. And the Levites were playing music, you know, maybe great praise songs like we've had this morning. And they were worshiping. And it was a joyous occasion as they thought about the grace that God had bestowed upon the whole nation. And as they successfully marched in as champions with the ark, David's disapproving wife, Michael, doesn't like the fact that David is dancing before the Lord with his whole might. God thought it was just fine. And here's how we know it. David rebukes her and says, listen, you got to understand, your dad used to be king, but God saw fit to make me king in his place. And I was a nobody from a nowhere family. And I, hallelujah, praise the Lord. And if you think this is bad, he tells his wife, you wait, I'm going to be even more undignified. And God looks upon this situation and the scripture simply says this. Michael at the time had no children and she had no children to the day of her death. God was impressed with her praise. And there is a time, an appropriate time for singing and for praising and clapping within the worship context. But that's not the only way you should worship God. Turning your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 7. I'm going to close with this. 2 Samuel chapter 7. And I'm going to turn with you. This David was a recipient of grace. He was not impressive to look at. He was, what was impressive was his faith. And what was impressive was his response to the grace of God. So David is in his palace and the prophet Nathan is with him. And he says to Nathan, you know, listen, I just don't feel good about something. I'm here in the palace and I, it's a wonderful palace. It's majestic. I got thrones and lions. And it's just awesome. But the temple is sitting here in a tent. That just doesn't seem right. Nathan said, listen, you don't have to say another word. Do what's in all your heart. Go ahead and build it. So they go to sleep. That evening, God appears to Nathan. He tells him this. Listen, I have been with my people from Egypt all the way through the desert, here in the land of Canaan, fighting their enemies, making provision, manna in the desert. I'm about trying to build a holy nation and a holy people. I never asked any of you guys to build me a house. I'm all the while trying to build to sanctify you. I'm trying to build you a house. So here's what I want you to tell your son, my son, David. You tell him, I took you from being a sheep, a shepherd, and made you king. I defeated your enemies all around. Now I'm going to build you a house. For the sake of my people, to give my people rest, I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to take a son from your own body, put him on your throne, and he's going to have an eternal kingdom. 
And David is just overwhelmed. He gets the message from Nathan the next day. And he hardly can comprehend the grace that God has poured out on his head. Being a nobody and now a king. Being a king and now an eternal king. Having rest, having prosperity, having... He's just overwhelmed. And sometimes when we worship, it's good to sing and to clap. But other times... We just have to sit down and meditate and think. Sometimes you got to create your own grace checklist. And this is what David does. He's got his own grace checklist. Second Samuel chapter 7. I'm going to read you a few verses of David's grace checklist. Then King David went in and sat down before the Lord. And he said, who am I? O sovereign Lord, and what is my family that you have brought me this far? You ever thought about that? I wish, I wish you guys could go to my neighborhood on the west side of Chicago. Drug infested, drug dealers on every corner. What is my family that you have brought me this far? And if this were not enough in your sight, O sovereign Lord, you have also spoken about the future of the house of your servant. Is this the usual way you deal with men, O sovereign God? What more can David say? For you know your servant. O sovereign Lord, for the sake of your word and according to your will, you have done this great thing and you have made it known to your servant. How great you are, O sovereign Lord. It makes you think of those hymns, how great thou art. There is no one like you. There is no God but you. And we have heard and see with uh, as we have heard and with our own ears. And who is like your people, Israel, the one nation on earth that God went out to redeem as a people for himself and to make a name for himself and to perform great and awesome wonders by driving out nations and their gods from before your people whom you redeemed out of Egypt. You have established your people, Israel, as your very own forever. And you, O Lord, have have become their God. O Lord Almighty, verse 27, God of Israel, you have revealed this to your servants, saying, I will build you a house. So your servant has found courage to offer you this prayer. O sovereign Lord, you are God. Now, when David got the message back from Nathan that he would have a son on the throne forever, he didn't know that God was pointing towards the Christ. But in Luke chapter 1, when the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary, 
and told her about the child that was in her womb. She said, he said, Gabriel said to Mary, the child in your womb will sit on the son of his father, David, forever. He is the son of David and by the Holy Spirit that is about to overwhelm you, he is the son of God. And through that son, Jesus Christ, all of us have received amazing grace. I'm amazed that all of us can call ourselves the children of God. As the worship team comes with this last selection, I want you to sit. I don't want you to stand. I want you to sit. I want you to meditate. I think it appropriate for you to think through, pray through your own grace checklist. How God has delivered and kept and sustained you your whole life, even to the current day. Amen.